We're having some trouble getting hooked up here tonight. Um, Marsh is having difficulty getting in. I had difficulty getting in, so we're getting a slow start here. Uh, the show is Betrayed by Hospice, and Marsha Joyner is the host. So we're hoping we can have her on here in just a few minutes. Uh, I don't know what's going on with all of this, but we're here. And um, we'll we'll keep broadcasting. We have someone on area code 920. Is this Sarah? Yes, this is Sarah. Hi, Sarah. I'm sorry for the delay. Oh, um, well, what are you going to do, right? Yeah. Well, thank you for hanging in there. And like I say, hopefully Marsha will be in here in just a minute. Uh, <laughs> uh, you have a, you're a retired attorney, as I understand it, and you're very familiar with health care. And I think here we have Marsha now. Marcia Hang on a second. A <laughs> Marsha? Uh, yes. Yeah, okay, I'm sorry. Uh, we had some me? technical difficulties here, yeah. And um, Sarah is on with you, so go ahead and pick it up, kid, and I apologize. Okay, okay, okay. All right, um, this is starting out to be a wonderful year, <laughs> we can tell. Last year was um, just as crazy and um, hold on tight. It looks like we're going to repeat. So um, I didn't hear what Marty said. I was Sarah, I apologize. I was trying to call you back. Um, this is TS Radio, and this is Betrayed by Hospice, brought to you in coordination with Marcel Reed and the Whistleblower Summit, and our producer, who you just heard, Marty Oakley. And they provide us a forum to talk about topics that other people don't want you to hear about. So um, I'd like to wish everybody a belated Happy New Year. I hope you had a good time with your family. And this is our first time broadcasting for this year, and we hope to be back on track. This is our third year for the Betrayed by Hospice talk show, warning people about the dangers. And I'd like to thank our guest that came on in the past years and told their heartfelt, tragic stories about losing their loved ones to hospice betrayal, and our experts who have shared their knowledge to keep others from going down the path of hasten death, And, of course, you, our listeners, for tuning in and supporting our mission to help others by listening and spreading the word. If this is the first time that you've joined us, I hope that you garner a lot of information tonight with our guest, Sarah Busher. And if you have joined us in the past, I hope you get some other information that can help you save someone else, because that is what our intent is, is to try to save other people. So we appreciate you spending the next hour or so with us. Uh, My personal experience with hospice betrayal was in 2017 when my mom was cruelly murdered in Georgia under the guise of hospice compassionate care. And it was then that I started researching and trying to find out everything I could about the horror we had just witnessed. And I still can make no sense of it, but I realize now it wasn't personal to them. 
It was just business as usual, another day of hastening someone's death. There were no faces, no names associated with their mission. But to my family and me, it was incredibly personal, and I will never forget or forgive those complicit in her murder. So when I tell other victims that I understand, I understand, because I've been there, and my heart breaks for all of us. This last year, we have seen COVID-positive patients being sent to nursing homes where the most vulnerable people live, and most of them died. I believe it was intentional and part of the calling of our elderly because they cost too much money to take care of. So it's okay to prematurely end their life. Well, according to them, but not to us. And then there is this vaccine, which either you are for it and you will line up and take that, or you against it and you will not. And since it is not like a regular vaccine made from dead or living microorganisms, but a nucleic acid vaccine, it seems to me there is more of a risk as it's more experimental and some are trusting it's safe to give to the elderly who are most vulnerable. And it appears many of them have already had reactions and many have died after taking that. But that's another show, and I digress. But my point is that the elderly are being called, actively being called. Hospice was created in 1967 to provide compassionate care and minimize pain for those who were actively dying from a disease that couldn't be treated with medications or procedures. It was never meant to drug unsuspecting patients into a coma and hasten their death with those drugs, starvation, and dehydration. And today, almost any illness will qualify you to be enrolled, even if you don't have an illness, but you have problems dressing yourself or feeding yourself or you become incontinent, you qualify. And because I believe in checking things out for yourself and verifying, check out vitas, V-I-T-A-S dot com for what will qualify you. And if you don't understand why they would want to enroll someone who wasn't really ill, then I highly recommend you read Michelle Young Dewar's book, Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice, and it is truly dark and evil. Michelle was a hospice respiratory therapist who saw enrollment quotas and the so-called compassionate care and shares real-life patient stories and exposes those signing quotas, promises made but not kept, and patient's life being endangered. She is a true warrior standing up against a big conglomerate who put money before humanity and lost her job because she would not accept this culture of mistreatment and death. And this has been going on for decades, but most of us didn't know. We didn't know the horror and the depths of grief from seeing a loved one put down more cruelly than one of our precious fur babies. We witnessed it firsthand when we saw our loved ones betrayed by people who were supposed to be compassionate at a patient's greatest need and help them, not murder them. And let me be clear, for those who have not experienced this and think that you had a peaceful situation with hospice, I'm not going to deny that that is what you believe and maybe that is what happened. But for those of us who saw this, there was nothing peaceful about our loved one's death. The drugs most commonly used are one-size-fits-all. They are morphine, 
also referred to as Roxanol, Ativan, also referred to as Lorazepam, Haldol, also known as Halperidol, and Seroquel. So if your loved one is in a situation and you hear these drugs brought up, please research those drugs. I'll go into more detail at another time, another program, but not tonight. We don't have the time for that. But suffice it to say, these drugs are toxic. There are black box warnings on that, not to give it to the elderly. There are also warnings that say, do not combine these drugs. And yet, that is exactly what hospice does. They combine them, and they know what it's going to do. It's going to kill the patient. That is their intent. And you might say, well, they get paid for patients. Why would they want to kill them? There is an aggregate cap this year. It's $30,683.93. It's a pot of money, and it's the number of patients times that amount. So if one patient lives 10 days, one three months, 14 months, two years, they take money from that pot, if that makes sense to you. So somebody, if they come in there and they say, well, you know, we think you're going to live six months and they die in two months or 10 days, they don't get paid for the full six months. They only get paid for the number of days. But that pot of money can be used for another victim. That's how they do it. Because each hospice only has so many beds, so many nurses, so many CNAs that they can send out to take care of patients. And if you become combative or harder to deal with or more ill and require more attention, then more than likely you're going to be the first on that list for them to get rid of. I want to list a couple of resources quickly here before I introduce our guest that you can go to. Healthcare advocacy and leadership organization known as Halo Voice has a goal to promote, protect, and advocate for the rights of medically vulnerable. They can be reached at their website, halovoice.org, or 888-221-4256. They have a hotline that you can contact them. Life Legal Defense Foundation can be reached at their website, lifelegaldefensefoundation.org, altogether, or 707-224-6675, and they have pro-life attorneys they can recommend. My advice is to avoid hospice. If you have a terminal disease that cannot be treated, you're in pain, and you cannot acquire pain medicine from your doctor, and you have to go to hospice, watch them like a hawk and do your homework. The problem is not that people are uneducated. The problem is they are educated just enough to believe what they have been taught and not educated enough to question what they have been taught. And since this month we're celebrating Martin Luther King, Jr., I'd like to borrow something from him. Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that, excuse me, things that matter. Tonight we'll concentrate on the differences between palliative care and hospice care, along with other details. Tonight our guest is Sarah Busher, who is a retired attorney and CPA. She is no stranger to what is happening to our elderly because as a lawyer in private practice, she advocated for the elderly and disabled. She currently serves on the board, many of you may be familiar with, Euthanasia Prevention Coalition, 
on the USA side instead of the Canada side, which Alex Shaddenberg serves on. She is the chair of the Coalition of Wisconsin Aging and Health Groups, a member of Wisconsin Anti-Assisted Suicide Coalition, and she is also a member of HALO's advisory board. Previously, she served on Governor Tommy Thompson's task force on health care, cost, and managed employee benefit programs for the state of Wisconsin and the university. She actively shares documentation and information on a robust group of other advocates sponsored by attorney Margaret Dorr in Washington State, who we have to have on the show at a later date. Sarah, I hope I've given you enough time, but can you tell us how introduce Sarah Bushner, and can you tell us how you became involved becoming an elder advocate? Uh, sure, Marsha, and thank you so much for um, the good build-up and inviting me to speak to your audience. And uh, how I became involved, uh, I guess or how, where my passion comes from, is what happened to my grandfather when I was 26 years old. At that time, he was 88, and uh, despite that advanced age, lived independently in his own home, uh, volunteered at Goodwill, uh, routinely went on trips, flying on airplanes, riding on trains with his friends, and uh, basically enjoyed life. And uh, one night he went out for fish fry with... uh, his son and uh, daughter-in-law and one of his daughters. And when they got back, uh, my uncle parked a car across the street from Grandpa's house. And uh, Grandpa was walking across the street to his house when a 16-year-old who had just gotten his driver's license ran him down in the street. Uh, He was taken to the hospital, and he had a broken arm and a broken leg that were set. But his breathing was labored, and uh, they called all his children who came and visited with him. And he actually complained about having trouble breathing. Uh, Well, anyway, uh, they all went home, and my uncle was the last one there. And so Grandpa asked my uncle to go over to his house and get his spare pair of eyeglasses. So my uncle did that, and when he got back to the hospital with the glasses, they told him, well, your father has died, and uh, that he had broken ribs and that he had turned over in bed and uh, the ribs had punctured his lungs, and that's how he died. That quick. Pardon? That quick. Yeah, that quick, in about 15 minutes that it took to go get his glasses. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't know why, but I just knew it. I just knew that he had died because I just didn't want to be bothered with an 88-year-old man who I'm sure they saw as someone who was, you know, one foot on a banana peel, one foot in a grave. And uh, it just seemed very, very wrong to me. So that was how I kind of got started with all of this. 
Okay, and so do you want to go ahead and start with on the differences between palliative care and hospice care and explain how that is different? Sure. Um, So palliative care is really hospice care that's extended to a, a broader group of people. And so I just kind of want to go through the similarities and differences. So I think most of you know that hospice is for uh, terminal illness with uh, less than six months to live, and it excludes all your normal medical care for that terminal illness because it's presumed to be um, not treatable. Palliative care is for serious illness or chronic illness with um, a longer life expectancy and provided alongside usual medical care. Hospice itself provides two types of care, palliative and supportive. Palliative is the name they give to the care that's provided to the patient. Supportive is what they provide to the family. So palliative care programs provide hospice-like services alongside usual medical care for patients who are not terminally ill. And palliative care programs also do provide hospice uh, when people qualify for hospice. There are many... Well, I was just going to ask you on the clarification, if because people have talked about when they under hospice that they will continue to give them their regular medicines, but typically that is with palliative care that you will get your regular medications for heart problems or kidney or anything. But once you go into hospice, typically they will stop giving you any medical procedures, right? Uh, Yes and no. Technically, uh, they'll stop giving you medications for your terminal illness, but they should be providing you medications for other problems that you have. But in actual practice, a lot of times they don't. Mm -hmm. Right. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. That's okay. Uh So there's, in terms of definitions, there's all kinds of different definitions and they're changing all the time. So it's really hard sometimes to nail down. But uh, here's one from Wikipedia. Palliative care is an interdisciplinary medical care, medical caregiving approach aimed at optimizing quality of life and mitigating suffering among people with serious complex illness. Now, the term palliative care itself was coined by a a Canadian doctor, and he came up with it as a way of avoiding reference to hospice. So it initially was, the idea was to um, get people into hospice but not call it hospice, call it something else. It is oriented toward death. So even though they would say if you get a diagnosis of congestive heart failure or um, COPD, 
that is when you should start in palliative care, right away when you get that diagnosis. And at that point, you could live, you'd be expected to live five, ten years down the road. Um, and despite that, it's really oriented toward death. And it sees hospice enrollment and death as a path that patients are on. And the doctors, nurses, and social workers and chaplains who are certified, you know, like board certified in palliative care, must also be certified in hospice. It's actually a certification in hospice and palliative care. So I thought it was kind of interesting thinking about this orientation um, toward death. There was a just a new study that came out where they interviewed uh, doctors and other health care providers who worked in hospitals dealing with COVID-19. Um, and it, the study was actually about if they had to ration care and how that was happening. But they had uh, comments uh, right from the interviews. So the doctors that worked in the intensive care unit said they were happy uh, to take any kind of unproven therapy um, even if there were risks, and try it. So they were willing to try whatever they could think of to see if it would work and figure out how, what to do to help people recover from COVID. And I think we know now that they've made um, tremendous strides in terms of people surviving because they've figured out uh, what to do. The palliative care team, on the other hand, thought they'd get all kinds of referrals for people who were near death, but they really didn't get any referrals for COVID patients. And so they said they thought that the other doctors in the hospital were uncomfortable consulting them or uh, making referrals to them because they didn't know what the outcomes were going to be and they didn't want to send a negative message to the patient. Tell didn't you that can't... happen? Didn't Pardon? that happen in the nursing homes? That's exactly what happened because hospice was called in in many of the nursing homes because hospice people are familiar with how to talk to the families when the patient is dying. Right, and that's what palliative care does too. Mm-hmm. So palliative care, you will find it in the hospitals, and then now recently they've been promoting it and growing it in the community. Um, and depending on the surveys, two recent surveys, anywhere from 50% to 69% of these palliative community programs are owned by hospices. And the care is usually provided in the home those that aren't owned by hospices are contracting with health insurers, in particular Medicare Advantage plans. So if, um, if they're with the Medicare Advantage plan, you might get a phone call if you've been targeted for palliative care where they um, offer you house calls, for example. They don't use the word palliative, but... That's how they operate. Uh, right now, that palliative care programs are not available in what we call classic Medicare, 
although there's some push to try to do that. So, um, go ahead. No, go ahead. So uh, there are some studies called uh, random controlled trial studies. They're the best kind where they assign people randomly and then have different interventions. So there's been a few of those done that compare palliative care to um, usual medical care. And they found no difference in terms of pain relief and uh, management of physical symptoms. In addition to being thought of as for pain relief and symptom management, palliative care also provides those conversations, goals of care conversations, advanced care planning conversations, conversations about what you would want or not want done in terms of treatment at near the end of life. And um, that's a whole topic, too, for a whole nother program. I will say I went through training to be a facilitator and have those kind of conversations. I've never done the conversation, but I went through the training. And it's really um, aimed at getting people to refuse in advance to have, um, you know, be on a ventilator, get IVs, uh, get a feeding tube, be resuscitated, that sort of thing. Um, Right. They just want you to accept that you're dying and you just, you really don't want anything done. You don't want us to break your ribs or, you know, it would be painful. You just want to go, right? And they'll sign the paper for you even if the person is not awake enough to make that decision. There have been nurses and doctors that will sign that you don't want any care. If something happens, goes south, you just want to die. And that is so wrong. Right, and I mean, it's a, it can in some cases be very, um, very uh, bad, very corrupt. In California, in a nursing home in California, um, they were doing medical audits out of. There's a a group in California that does that, and um, they found pre-signed um, medical orders. That, that with all this rejected stuff that were blank. In other words, they were, and they were uh, in the charts, and they could be filled in then by at any time by a staff person. And they were in the charts on the beds of people who were being terribly neglected with bed sores and laying in their own waste and all that kind of thing, mm-hmm. and not getting their pain medication and so forth. Mm-hmm. I wanted to mention a, just a few things about the finances of palliative care and hospice care because I think it's helpful to understand um, why they do some of the things they do. So palliative care at this time is not a separate program within Medicare like hospice is. It's just so if it's just. Um, paid for the same way as any other medical care. So there might be an office visit, there might be a lab test, there might be a consultation. Um, 
and then that's billed to an insurer, and then they get paid. So uh, palliative care reimbursements only cover 50 to 80% of their costs. So it actually operates at a financial loss. Hospice, on the other hand, gets paid so much per day, um, the minimum rate for a new hospice patient is just under $200 a day. And so you can see that would be like $6,000 a month. And they get that regardless of how much or how little services they provide. And it's also the most profitable um, benefit line within Medicare with profits running 17 to 18%. Um, Mm-hmm. Hospitals, um, for by comparison, are pretty much break even. So there's um, and so thinking, okay, that a lot of these palliative care programs are owned by hospices. All the people have to be certified in hospice as well as palliative care. You can see there's a pretty strong financial incentive to move a patient who's in palliative care over into hospice. Exactly. The other thing that happens is um, if, if somebody's trying to start a palliative care program and they're going to like a health care system and we would like you to um, have, offer palliative care within your health care system, and, oh, by the way, it's a, a loser financially, then what they'll say is that it saves money by reducing other costs, like hospital costs especially, um, and especially ICU and ventilator-dependent care because that's very expensive. And the way they do that is through these goals of care conversations. So, um, and the other thing that happens is the hospices actually use palliative care to try to get more people into hospice sooner. And the more people they get in that are fairly healthy, the less um, money they have to spend on them, and they still get their $200 a day. Right. So so they're trying to entice people in. They might not call it palliative care. Like where I am, they call it treatment plus. I picked up the brochure off the rack and I went, hmm, treatment plus, and I'm reading. You know, of course I know about palliative care. And then I, it says, oh, it's offered by Unity Hospice. And I went, mm-hmm, I get it. <laughs> this mm-hmm, is our local right. palliative care program. Right. Read between the lines. So um, another thing I wanted to bring to your attention, and we don't hear about this too much, is what happens with palliative care when assisted suicide and euthanasia are legalized. And in Belgium, where it's been been, uh, that way for many years, I think 20-plus years, they did a study in this it's kind of amazing, the results. So this was a survey of over 2,400 Belgian physicians. And what they found out was 
that in 59.8%, so 59% of the euthanasia deaths, there was palliative specialists involved. And that they were involved either in the decision-making, in other words, the decision to die by euthanasia, or the actual performance of the euthanasia. Then when they looked at patients who requested euthanasia, what they found was that for those patients that um, were receiving palliative care, 70.9% had requested euthanasia. Whereas for the patients who were not receiving palliative care, only 45% requested euthanasia. Now, doesn't that make you think they were being coerced and being led to believe that the best thing for them was to die? Yes, and doesn't it make you believe that the palliative care practitioners think that the best thing they've got to offer to people is to help them die? Exactly. Exactly. And in many cases, that's a misconception because, as you said earlier, that if you have congestive heart failure, they try to talk you into the palliative care, which ultimately they would go into hospice, and that person could live five to ten years. Right. Congestive heart failure is not imminent death in the next six months. No, but that's who they're targeting. Correct. For palliative care. Now, we have a little more data along this line in Oregon and Washington, the uh, the two states where it's been legal, assisted suicide's been legal the longest. Mm -hmm. And in both of those states, over 90% of the people who died by assisted suicide by ingesting the lethal dose they got were enrolled in hospice at the time they died. Mm. And an early Oregon study, those who received a palliative intervention were more likely to die by lethal dose than those who had not received a palliative intervention. So it's 12% versus 9%. And I wonder how many of them requested that and how many of them it was done to with no request. Right, and we don't know because there is no witness. No, correct. And that you, we already know that they fill out the DNR forms for patients and sign them under false pretenses. Right. Now, in 2017... The Leaders of Compassion and Choices, which is the primary promoter of uh, legalized medical killing in the United States, their leadership called for medical aid in dying, which is their euphemism for assisted suicide and euthanasia, to be considered an option within palliative care. Can you go back and say the name of that again? Because I want the listeners to hear the words that you just said. What is the name of the organization? Compassion and Choices. Right. 
Right. I want everybody to make sure that you're aware of that compassion and choices. Neither could be farther from the truth. So um, go ahead. I just wanted to point that out. Yes. So they want to use, you know, uh, language that people will subscribe to, just like Treatment Plus. Right. Smoke Um, and mirrors. Right. In 2019, uh, in the state of Delaware, where our new president hailed from, uh, they had a bill to legalize assisted suicide and medical aid in dying. And in that bill, they said medical aid in dying is, under the law, if that bill were to pass, a palliative care option. We also have physicians from states where killing patients is legal. Uh, They have formed the National Clinicians Conference on Medical Aid in Dying. Uh, It promotes assisted suicide within the medical community, and it provides training to those who are ready to kill. And uh, the number of assisted suicide physicians on their list who practice palliative care is concerning. So, in other words, what we're seeing is trends within the United States um, where they're becoming (laughs) like the people in Belgium. And Canada. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in Canada. In Canada. Can I just say the, the most recent one that I recall is a gentleman who was, um, and you, you probably know about this since you're on the euthanasia board, but he was like 30-something and he had some kind of disease and they refused to give him any more pain medication. And his only alternative, he would no longer get anything for this, the pain he was experiencing. The only alternative was to agree to be euthanized. And so right. he did because he was in that much pain. And right. they wouldn't and just minimize it. They killed him. The other thing they did, and, and this also happened in Canada, is um, people needed care in in long-term care support and and beds and facilities, and they would not give them that. And so they were euthanized. Murdered. Right. Now, some palliative care has been corrupted, as we just kind of discussed. People disagree on the extent of those problems. And, of course, there still remains ethical and authentic palliative care, just as there still remains ethical and authentic hospice. However, it's very hard for patients and families to figure out which kind they're dealing with before it's too late. Exactly. So I wanted to kind of give you some more background on where this came from and how and kind of how to see whether you've got a problem or how big a problem this is. We have 
a lot of palliative care programs because there was, it was the main focus of a big project called the Project on Death in America, which was designed to change how we die. And the George Soros uh, Open Society Institutes and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation spent more than $200 million to develop and expand palliative care within medicine. Now, after all these years, 20, 30 years of doing this and promoting hospice and palliative care is the best way to die, the leaders in the field said, and this is a quote, families facing a serious illness do not want a good death. They want a cure. So that just was their frustration in that they couldn't get people to do <laughs> what they wanted them to do. And a good death is a sedated death. You know, that's their view. Well, and that's easy for them to say. They're not the one experiencing it. And if you've ever watched someone die from the drugs they give them, there is nothing good about that death. Nothing. It is not painless. It is horribly painful. So they just want them to agree to let me kill you. Uh, that, yeah, that makes sense. So because of their frustration, they decided to prom- to decouple the promotion of palliative care from hospice in order to reach more patients earlier in the pro- progression of their disease. Or as they say, it's to reach more patients upstream. So now they promote palliative care not as a means of a good death, but as um, an additional layer of services for people with serious illnesses. But in my opinion, it remains oriented toward death. Absolutely. So hospices are now using palliative care as a lost leader, and you can see articles in the trade magazines for hospice that say they're using it as a lost leader. And what that means is they want to enroll more people who are not dying and need less care into hospice. So if you had a marketing background, you would know a lost leader is a product that's priced below cost, advertised that way to draw people, customers into the store where they then buy stuff with a big markup. Mm-hmm. And so like bait and got, switch. Right, right. It's a bait and switch, but initial the initial um, marketing ploy is the loss leader. Um, this has gotten so warped that we now have a case in Texas where a where a large um, hospice ha- is is under a sixty million dollar fraud indictment because they the the owner of this hospice was not a medical person. 
was actually directing nurses, and this, these are quotes out of texts and um, emails, to make specific patients go bye-bye with morphine because they were bumping up to, against the cap, and they were going to, you know, make the cap, use up the cap. Right, cutting into profit. Cutting into profits, so they needed to go bye-bye, and they were going to do it with morphine. Um, we're also seeing there has been several audits of hospices by the um, federal government Office of Inspector General and the Health and Human Services Department that have uh, documented all kinds of abuses. And among those are people being placed in the hospice without their knowledge. So you take that in combination. Somebody's put in hospice, they don't even realize they've been signed up for hospice. They're not anywhere near death. They're not dying. They're not terminal. They may be, in fact, pretty healthy. And yet if something happens like the cap or some other thing that, or they're difficult or something, they can have a hastened death. Well, they so. do. They talk them into believing that if you, if you accept our services, we'll give your loved one more baths. We'll, there'll be more care. We'll come in. We'll, we can provide men, you know, food for you. We can give you sitter services, uh, you know, take care of you, bring, send a nurse to you. And a lot of people feel like that what they're getting is better than what they would get if they were taking their patient to a doctor's office because somebody's going to come to you. It's, it's painted as a win situation for the family, and it won't cost you anything because right. Medicare or Medicaid will pay for it. And you're absolutely right. People totally have no clue what they just signed. They thought they just signed their dad or mom getting more baths, somebody coming in to help them, and they're not going to have to pay for it. They've signed. Yeah, you gotta you got to look at the paperwork. you got to look at you the do. paperwork. Mm-hmm. And if, if hospice is saying to you, we, we know mom isn't really terminal, but you can get free housekeeping services, that should be a red flag that they're corrupt and right. you don't want anything to do with that kind of organization. Right. But it's money. Right. I mean, that, that's it's, what it is. It's it's a money-making organization that everybody's got their fingers in the pie and they want the money. And the commodity is you or your loved one's life. Right. Now, what what has happened, though, is that a lot of people don't trust it, and, and they want to stick with their own doctor. They don't want to go with palliative care. And this was illustrated. There was a, a five-year Medicare Choices uh, payment model that was tested, and within this, it was like a, a research study in effect. They allowed hospices um, 
to provide palliative care alongside curative care or or usual care. And this was supposed to um, last for five years, and then they were going to evaluate it and see if they should make changes to Medicare. But they had uh, it failed in its first year because too few people enrolled and doctors would not refer their patients to palliative care. And I've had doctors tell me that I don't send anybody to palliative care. I do my own palliative care Mm -hmm. because if I send my patients to palliative care, they kill them. And he was being honest. Right. So this all raises a question in my mind, and that is, does palliative care create a second tier of health care for older people and for disabled people? Last year I had a congressional staffer tell me, we need palliative care professionals to manage the care of all those old baby boomers. And I thought, well, we already have a shortage of primary care physicians and geriatricians. Why should we have more palliative care people? Mm -hmm. Um, And then the founder of a multi-state palliative care company says, insurers save thousands of dollars per patient when unnecessary treatments are avoided thanks to our services. So they're talking about those goals of care conversations. And what's really troubling is the man who said this is now in charge of the Innovation Center for Medicare within the Federal Department of Health and Human Services. And you already know that he doesn't respect the sanctity of life. Right. And if somebody gets to be a certain age and I don't know what that age is, 65, because you're going to retire and you're going to start getting Social Security. Is it 70? You know, what, what is that sweet spot? But when you get to that age, you're going to cost more money because you're going to be drawing retirement, you're going to go to the doctor, and it's going to cost us money, and we don't want to pay it. So now you are on that, what can we find wrong with you so that we can get rid of you and euthanize because you're just taking up space and air, and those are the baby boomers. You know, the baby boomers are coming into this age now where they need something, they need a way to get rid of them, which is what we all believe that Pachetta, the Palliative Care Education and Training Act, is to create more hospices to take care of the baby boomers, just like this doctor said. Right. And that legislation will be coming back. So we'll be at the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition. We'll be tracking that, and we'll be getting word out when we want people to do something. Like probably the first thing we're going to want people to do is contact their senators and representatives and and ask them to not sign on to the bills as co-sponsors. Exactly. So... When this and this has come to our listeners, this has come up what, Sarah, for the past four years, four or five years, right, right, and it is palliative 
um, care, education, and training, and they will tell you that it's to train, to provide better training for the people that are in the hospice industry. That is a lie. It is to create more hospice facilities so they can take care of the baby boomers. So when this comes out, I know that Sarah will be, I will be, uh, Marty will be, a lot of us will be coming to you on Facebook, emails, telephone calls, whatever, and asking you to, as Sarah just said, contact your senator, let them know you want them to oppose this because it will create more facilities to euthanize people. So people ask, we'll what can give, I do we'll to help? Give you the, we'll give you the arguments and we'll you know, give you right. some guidance on how to figure out who your senator is and how to contact them and all that kind of thing. So Exactly. It, it will make it easy for you. But when people say, what can I do, this is something we're going to be coming to you, especially under the circumstances of today's, news um it's definitely going to be coming back up because yeah you know, it we is. just had a bill signed the sanctity of life to honor that but that's not the feeling of our new administration and that's all i'll say okay go ahead sarah i'm sorry okay so um i wanted to also uh share with you data i guess i call it about um the extent of this problem with the hasten deaths and uh so i i think it's like 50 50 your odds of of being um cared for by someone who could hasten your death is about 50 50 so in one study faculty at leading universities said and this is a quote Clinical practices in palliative medicine regularly result in shortening lives, unquote. And then they also reported on a study, and this is a quote, 39% of physicians and nurses said they intended to shorten survival with medications and treatment withdrawals. We have a very highly regarded, well-known um, university professor at Duke who practices hospice and palliative medicine. And he said this, and he wrote a chapter in a book about uh, dying in the 21st century and uh, that was published by MIT. And in his chapter he says, and this is also a quote, Many patients and their families tell stories about loved ones who decline slowly over time, fighting the good fight with the support and companionship of their family members and friends. When hospice and palliative medicine professionals became involved in their care, their loved ones were put on powerful drugs, became unconscious and unresponsive, and were soon dead. So I think that the fact that he said that indicates it's pretty pervasive. And in fact, in fact, instances of people being overdosed to unconsciousness until they died uh, were described in a 2014 Washington Post series on hospice. And in 2017, the Federal Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality 
identified this as a patient safety problem. But they don't do anything about it. Right. I know. Then there was a survey that was done by of uh, members of the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine. So this is physicians. And there were over 800 respondents to this survey. And they were asked whether um, different practices should be considered part of a best practice for palliative sedation. So, for example, 86% of them said a do not resuscitate order should be part of that best practice protocol for palliative sedation. 76% said cessation of nutrition, and 67.7% said cessation of hydration should be part of that best practice. Well, you know if they don't get food and fluids, they're going to die, right? Mm -hmm. Painfully. Yeah. 45% of them said that they would sedate patients who were not actively dying to unconsciousness and then withhold food and fluids until they died. The patients who were not actively dying. Right. Patients that who they exactly would, what, would live longer than three days. Um, and a fourth of them so about 11% of the 800, said they wouldn't even consider life expectancy as a factor in deciding whether they were going to do this to a patient. It didn't matter to them how long the person would live if they didn't do it. Mm-mm. No, and it goes back to there are no names, there are no faces associated with these patients. These patients are not people these patients are things that they come in here, we have a revolving door, we euthanize them, move them out, move somebody else in, because all that person is is how much money am I making today? What is my paycheck going to be? That is the cruel reality of what hospice has become. And you're, you're, what you're pointing out here are facts, factual data that show the complicitness of these people, these doctors, these nurses, these people that work for hospice. And you're laying it out. These are the facts. This is not somebody's feeling that this happened. These are factual things that happened. Right. And that's and what everybody needs what to do. doctors and nurses are saying. Right. Not patients, not their families. Mm-hmm. Now we have a case uh, of a serial killer, I guess, for lack of a better term, in Ohio. This was in the summer of 2019. This doctor has been charged with 25 counts of ho- homicide for people receiving palliative care where he ordered, and this is what the prosecutor called him, outsized doses of fentanyl. 
the doses he ordered for these patients were anywhere from five to ten times the maximum recommended dose. And um, a, a, a pharmacist whistle blew on him. That's how it, how it surfaced. And at least five of these, so where he worked, they did a they did a medical audit of the records of these people that died, and they said at least five of these people would have survived with treatment if he hadn't killed them. So they had, like, uh, congestive heart failure or COPD or something like that. that or they were in the hospital for some acute thing. Mm-hmm. And Can I, um, at this point, on that particular drug that you're talking about, fentanyl, that in 2017 is when all of this talk about fentanyl came up, you know, now whether or not you were using it legally or illegally because it became a very, very popular drug. The right. fentanyl is 100 times stronger than morphine and 50 times stronger than heroin. And what he gave these patients, the the 25 that Sarah's talking to you about, what he gave them was over 500 micrograms of fentanyl. Fentanyl is, um, they talk about it in micrograms because a milligram would be, you know, if you gave somebody a milligram of it, they would die right on the spot. Police officers were dying from touching this powder. So it is a microgram that they're giving, 500 micrograms, which is incredibly strong. That was one of the drugs that they used on my mom, which was 100 micrograms of fentanyl that they used on her in addition to morphine and Ativan. This is a very, very toxic, strong drug. This guy knew what he was doing when he did it, and as Sarah says, he's a serial killer. Now... Just a few more things about this. His defense to these murder charges is that he was providing comfort care, which we know is another name for hospice. Right. And then what I find very troubling about this is the health care system that he worked at houses one of the nine regional palliative care education centers in our country who would get funds under the Pachetta Bill. Mm-hmm. And would be the ones that are training people on how to take care of patients. Right. And palliative care, a.k.a. murder. So I guess to summarize on what should you do, um, this is my recommendation. Avoid palliative care and stick with your own doctor. Talk to your doctor about some of these things, too, to find out what their views are um, on end-of-life care. Uh, Refuse to agree to any specific treatment refusals. You do not know ahead of time what the circumstances are that you might find yourself in, and you you don't know whether you're going to want or not want something till you're there. Um, 
I, when I was in my law practice, I helped a lot of people uh, complete health care powers of attorney. And I thought a lot about when would I want something, when wouldn't I want something. And, you know, and I, of course I was trying to help my clients figure these things out. And it took me quite a while, but what I eventually figured out is that what matters is are you going to be able to recover? If I get this treatment, will I recover or won't I? So, and that's really how you decide. And and there was a, a study done at uh, Yale Medical School, and they they tracked 226 people for like two years. And these people, a third had cancer, a third had COPD, a third had congestive heart failure. And at the start of the study, they were already had limited life expectancies, so they were pretty far along in their disease. And they asked them, you know, would you want to be in the hospital for a month? Would you want to be on a ventilator for a month? Would you want to be on a feeding tube? Would you want, you know, a, to be resuscitated and so on and so forth? And what they found was, and then they said, if if your choice is between 100% recovery and dying or 50% recovery and or dying, you know, and so on. And what they found was if the chance of recovery was 10% or more, 90% of them wanted everything. But if they couldn't recover or if they were going to end up severely disabled, then only about 25% of them wanted treatment. Well, but how do you know? Well, you don't know. And that's a crapshoot, too, right? Right. But at least if you wait until you're in the situation and and, and you should have someone designated to make decisions for you if you can't, at least when you're in that situation, you can ask the doctor, what do you think my odds are? And they might have an educated guess. If you're right. doing this five years before you might die, um, how you wouldn't have any idea at all. And if you go into the hospital and you're having a procedure done, um, you're having a bypass, for instance, and you go in, if you sign a DNR, do not resuscitate, and all of a sudden you you know your heart stops while you're on the table. But that doesn't mean that they couldn't, you know, do the paddles and get you back. But you sign a DNR, they're not going to try because right. what they they're going to say is. They probably wouldn't even do the surgery on you, to be honest, if you signed a DNR. Well, no, they might start the surgery because they're still going to get money for doing it. But if if you had signed a DNR, they're not going to go to any efforts whatsoever to right. bring you back. And right. People, I think, believe that signing a DNR means I don't want to be on a ventilator for the rest of my life. I don't want to be a vegetable. That is not what a DNR, signing a DNR means. It doesn't mean that 
you know, if I'm going to be a vegetable, then I want you to let me die. It means if my heart stops during this procedure, if I stop breathing, if, you know, anything goes wrong. And in my case, I mean, I'm terrified to go to the hospital because I know too much. But if I did, for some reason, if my husband took me because I wasn't conscious, I'm not, you know, my medical power of attorney says do everything you can to save me. And that means, you know, if you've got to, you know, bring me, do CPR, bring me back, you know, feeding tube, whatever. I do not want to die. And if I am going to die, it's going to be my way. It's not going to be somebody, you know, giving me toxic drugs. And that is a very good point that you're saying. On the Halo site, halovoice.org, they have a sample medical power of attorney that you can go in there and find and fill out. And you want to make sure that you have that before you need it because none of us know, you know, if you get in your car and, you know, you have an accident, you have to have something in place. And whoever is going to be speaking for you, you need to make sure that they want you to live and they want what's best for you. I've had many guests on and their siblings, you know, they fought with their siblings because the sibling wanted the mom or the dad gone and were complicit in their murder or the spouse was complicit in the murder of you know, the husband or the wife. So it's real important that you let people know what your wishes are and that you have everything documented in a place where everybody knows where it is and they can get to it. If it's, you know, if you've lost it, it's not going to do you any good. And it needs to say that any, if it's a copy of it, a copy is as good as the original so you don't have to go down to the bank and take it out of the safety deposit box in an emergency. What you have will work. Right, and you should also have them on file with your local health care system, you know, in your electronic records. Now, I didn't think about doing that. That that would make me nervous. (laughs) But but you're probably right about that. I just, I have not done that. I have not done that. And I think that HALO document is very good because it, it really empowers the person who is going to make decisions for you. You know, I mean, it says things like um, that my agent can uh, direct that I receive treatment if it's beneficial to me, mm-hmm. and it's up and and the word beneficial means whatever my agent says it means. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm right. paraphrasing, but. Because it has language like that in there, it's like very strong um, in terms of empowering the agent uh, rather than the medical providers being the one that make that decision. Right, because it should be your family's decision. Did you help write that? Uh, no, I didn't help write that. But oh, okay. I, I, you reviewed it, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is, when you were talking about it, if a person, and uh, Dr. Paul Byrne has been on the show and talked about this extensively about brain death, 
And if you have been classified or your loved one is classified as brain death, that is something, too, you want to be very, very serious about giving that person time for their brain to heal. And if you have signed a DNR and that it's a young person and they've got body parts that they want and they can harvest them, it's a sad thing to say, but that happens, and they would forfeit that person's life to take all of their body parts because body parts are big, big money items. So there is also a um, brain dead card in there that you keep with your driver's license that says that you do not want to be an organ donator because now with the – I can't think of the name of the act right now – can you remember that? Um, well, I don't remember the name of it either, but I think the yeah. effect of it is you're presumed to be an organ donor unless you say you're not. Right, right. It used to be that you were not unless you said you were on your driver's license, but now right. Anatomical Gift Act, that's what it is. The Anatomical Gift Act now gives them the ability to take any of your body parts. There are different agencies around the country, and they would notify them that they have this person who is brain dead, and these are their body parts that can be harvested. So halovoice.org has a form you can fill out that says, I am not an organ donator, and you want to keep that with your driver's license. And you can also put language like that in your health care power of attorney as well as drugs that you are not to be given. Mm-hmm. Now, and we're, on our next segment, we're going to be discussing the drugs in detail, but you need to research those drugs before you let them give them to you or to your loved one. And with the medical power of attorney, they need to understand that you make your decisions unless, you are not able to do so. And in the meantime, I you know, would appreciate you discussing my care with me directly. Right. And I'll make those decisions because as long as you are conscious and can make decisions, they need to be listening to you. And the person advocating for you needs to be there and needs to know this is what you want. Don't wait until that time comes and your loved ones don't know what you would want and everybody's struggling. I, I don't know if she'd want to live or not or, you know, if, if they said she's brain If I'm brain dead, give me six months to come out of it at least. It right. takes a long time for the brain to heal. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> were, so were there any other mention, what you should do? Well, I just wanted to mention that, um, you know, sometimes uh, you're, if you're concerned about pain or, or your symptoms being managed, talk to your doctor about that and if if it's you know really um a problem ask the doctor if there's someone you can consult with but let your doctor be in charge because they can consult with these palliative care people and and maybe get some pointers on pain management but you don't want the palliative care people in charge of your care well um, yeah i don't think you want them you know, if you can avoid right. palliative care and hospice, you really should avoid them. 
Right. You know, if at all possible. But I want to be clear, like, um, if you see um, uh, a clinic that specializes in pain, a pain clinic, those people are not palliative care people. So they're usually anesthesiologists, actually, but they're not, they're more, they're the oriented toward life doctors, you know, wing of medicine. That's good to know. Um, That's real good to know. Now, you, I can't remember if you said, but we were talking earlier about a lot of times the people that are in charge of the palliative care are also affiliated with or it has the same owner of the hospice facility. Right, because the hospices own like 69% of the palliative care community programs. And even in your big health care systems, you'll have a unit, let's say, within the health care system, and the unit is hospice and palliative care and home care. And so it's all the people that go into the home are under, like, one management. And and the hospital is also works with um, maybe their regional hospice. Right. So when you're in a hospital and you've been there a couple of times, broken bones or COPD, you become a burden to that hospital. They don't want to see you back because they're getting in trouble for that. They get penalized. So somebody could show up from the palliative care or hospice stating that they could help you out. You'll get better care from us. And that's because the hospital has contacted them. Right. And yeah, like I the think, notice. Right. I think that, you know, the it, it's like you say, like I said, it's hard to know for sure. But um, the smaller hospices that are nonprofits that have been around for a long time are probably the places that are the best. Um, in my mom's case, I would have to disagree. Okay, so see, <laughs> <laughs> respectfully disagree. No, I'm, you're, you're, you know, I, that's what I'm saying. It's really hard to know, but mm-hmm. those are maybe some rules of thumb because the, the traditional authentic ones mm-hmm. tend to be the nonprofits and the smaller ones. Well, it, my, my particular, my mom's situation is that was a small one at one point. It's very, very large now, and it was yeah. for nonprofit. And my dad was actually the hospice chaplain for 15 years at that one, 10 years earlier before this happened. So we thought that we had trust in them because they knew how much my dad loved my mom, they knew my mom, and they would never do anything to hurt her. We were wrong, dead wrong, because she went over, when we were talking earlier about that cap, she had gone into eight months, was going into the nine months, and she had become um, a little bit difficult because she had, you know, 
confronted them with their lack of care and the fact that they kept changing the CNA, and she just said, I don't want you to send anybody out. I'm tired of you changing people, and I don't want you to send anybody out. They knew we were getting ready to pull her out of hospice, and that does not look good on them for a patient to be in that long and get out because if they go in, they're only supposed to live six months, and she was going to be coming out at nine months, and that would look bad for them. So they set the stage up to execute her. So, yeah, and it was nonprofit. Yeah. And was what you would consider religious. Group. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't mean anything. And, that doesn't and mean anything. I don't say that to be offensive to anyone. I, I am myself rather devout in my own religion, but just because they have a religious name or in a religious affiliation, it really doesn't mean anything in terms of whether they're safe or not. No, it doesn't. There's still danger, and you still have to do your research And if you can avoid them, avoid them. If you have to go in because it is an illness that there is no cure for and you do need something to minimize, minimize the pain, it does not mean morphine, Ativan, and Haldol. It means maybe a little bit of morphine, the mildest amount, but a person should be told what the drug will do and they should be given a small amount and there should be signed consent for it and there isn't once you get into hospice they start making the decisions they do not tell you what the plan is and they don't ask your permission no it's like assume that you want all that when you sign on the dotted line for hospice well and even the palliative care because as you said you're kind of tricked into going into it thinking that it's something completely different than what it is so it's you have to protect yourself this is not a world in which you can trust what you're being told you have to verify absolutely everything and be on your guard you know it's a sad thing but that is what happens so I cannot warn people strongly enough to verify everything, check everything out. And Sarah has given us a lot of really good information on the differences between palliative and hospice and how palliative is a straight line to hospice, which is a straight line to hastened death. Uh, you can call it assisted suicide, euthanasia, uh, it's murder. In any way you look at it, it's murder. Yeah, it's so, an unwanted death for sure. Right, and nothing peaceful about it. It's it's painful when you are you know don't have any fluids in your body and you're dying from dehydration and toxic drugs that cause t- horrible, horrible side effects which they give you other drugs to combat those side effects. So um, is there anything else you wanted to add? No, I think that was everything. Well, I appreciate you coming on, and, you know, I'm sorry we didn't have you on last week, but I appreciate you being able to change your schedule and come on and give us a lot of good information. 
And I well, hope I really listeners... appreciate the opportunity, Marsha. I thank you very much. Well, you're quite welcome. And for our listeners, we appreciate you standing by us and sharing this and protecting yourself. And we will be back. I will give the information for it on when we'll be back on a following Wednesday. And we'll be discussing drugs and their side effects and the combination that um, hospice is using and how they use that. So thank you very much, Sarah, and thank you, Marty, and thank you to our audience. And we'll be back with you again. Thank you very much. Good night, everyone. Good night. Good night.